Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. Didn't have my mic on. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, and we are uh, heading into the latter part of Lent and the beginning of the Easter season. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Yes, it is. And because of the logistics involved in having two outdoor services, which we didn't do last Palm Sunday, um, it's going to be technically very difficult for us to be live here next week. So Tim says and Holly says that she can help get last year's Palm Sunday time and we'll play it next yeah. Sunday. We'll do a replay. We'll do a replay. Yeah. Is it replay? Yeah. And see how we did. Yeah. You'd think we'd never done this before. We, neither one of us remembered to turn on our mics just now. Mm. We're fumbling a bit. <laughs> so uh, I do seriously want to invite you to look at the St. Paul's website and get tuned in on the opportunities for liturgy, liturgy uh, beginning, uh, well, every Sunday, but certainly next Sunday, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, all of Holy Week. Um, I will let you know that I'll be doing the homily at 2 o'clock on Good Friday. Um, and on uh, the Good Friday service that will be online. And then there will be three services on Easter Sunday, 8.30, 10, and 11.30, I think. Wow. But you'll have to check. Yeah, there will be three. There will be... And they're all outdoor, Bill? They will be all outdoor. Although, you know, I am anticipating by fall. We'll see how these variants go and vaccinations and all of the things. I'm not in the business of predictions anymore because a year ago we thought we'd be here for two weeks. Three or four weeks Yeah, you most. know, that's it. So here we are. Happy one year, except for it's not so happy. And, and also, if you go to the Ordinary Life website, you can find out a lot of stuff. We're, I think, upgrading the way that it looks and all that stuff. Um, Wayne Herbert is taking over the events page. And uh, if you join early enough on Sunday mornings to see the cartoons, most of those are sent to me by Wayne. Thank you, Wayne. Love you <laughs> for that. Uh, the Gatherer cartoon is just one of the funniest I've seen in a long time. It is funny. Anyway, our podcast. We have a podcast, and this week it was with Karen Richards-Kwan, who is a staff member here at St. Paul's, and it was a lovely conversation. Um, it comes out on Thursday mornings. It's called In Between. You can find it on our Ordinary Life website, via Apple Podcasts, and also via Spotify. So that was, that was a good time. And our goal is, we've had uh, Dr. Jeff McDonald, we've had Karen Richards-Kwan. Our goal is to have we've all had, of the clergy eventually. Yeah. Um, on, on the podcast. So again, thanks uh, to Olivia Watson and John Watson and Tim Leatherwood. William Budge is taking the day off, I guess, or maybe he's across the way helping out. I don't know where he is. He's not here. Okay. They get paid vacations now? <laughs> Just kidding. At any rate, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Thank you for hanging in with yeah. us. We're calling this time today, Let Them Eat Cake. And uh, I have lived most of my life with the certain knowledge that Marie Antoinette 
said those words in 1789, hmm. but I did a little research and found out that's not true. She didn't say it. Hmm. The historians say that it was a phrase invented by Jacques, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1765, which would have meant that Marie would have been nine years old when that happened. Whether it is a true story or a fictional story, the story was created that on learning that the peasants had no bread to eat, some great princess, showing her frivolous disregard for the starving peasants or showing her poor understanding of their plight, is alleged to have said, let them eat cake. And actually in the French, the word for cake is brioche. Is that how you say that word? My French accent is tinged with a touch of Texan, so I'm going to go with yes. Okay. <laughs> but a, a brioche, if you've ever had one, is a, a kind of a sweet bread that has an egg bath on it. And it can be kind of like a dessert bread, so mm -hmm. that it got translated, let them eat cake. I thought about this phrase when um, we were doing our study in doing this deep dive that we're doing into the Lord's Prayer and saw that the phrase that's up for today is, give us this day our daily bread. Eugene Peterson translates it, keep us alive with three square meals. And Neil Douglas Klotz does it, endow me with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and to flourish. Mm. You know, much of what Jesus taught, he did so indirectly by what he did, uh, how he behaved, who he hung out with, who he ate with, the laws that he did not um, abide by. And the narratives agree that Jesus prayed a lot, and the way that he prayed was not like any of the prayers that the people who hung out with him or the religious establishment had heard. Some were shocked by what he said. Some were puzzled. Some were delighted. Um, Hal Tusig, who is a man I met through the Jesus Seminar, he was one of the original Jesus Seminar members, has a very delight. He has a book on the Lord's Prayer, which I can't find in my library. Mm. But um, he imagines that there was this one day when Jesus uttered a single line near a meat stall. Now, this is active imagination. The line was said so quickly that no one figured out what was going on until it was over. Food had been the main topic of the conversation. It was late in the day, and those who were gathered in the marketplace were getting hungry. The meat stall reminded them that they had had nothing to eat that day and what they would have would not include meat. One of the men who was there was lucky enough at one time to have hired on to crew a sailing vessel and he told about a meal that he had once where not only fish was on the menu but lamb was on the menu too, my favorite food. And one of the women remarked, that's not fair. You had two meat dishes in one day, and I'm not even sure what I can feed my children tomorrow. And most people there agreed with her sentiments because they had no idea where their next meal was coming from. One of the farmers took out a couple of turnips from his bag, cut them into pieces, and passed them around the group. And for most people, that would be all they had to eat that entire day. They talked among themselves about 
the wonderful aromas that they were smelling coming from uh, the Roman barracks and the houses of the wealthy landowners. And the one in the crowd called Joshua said a sentence. It started out as a mumble, but as he repeated it and added to it, it became louder. Not only that, but his companions began to repeat it after him. Give us. Give us bread. Give us the bread we need. Mm. Give us the bread we need for today. And a couple of them got it. That is to say, they understood. They understood because of other teachings they had heard from Jesus. This was not just a demand for food. It was that. But it was so much more. Uh, it was a demand, uh, a challenge to live one day at a time. It was also a demand for justice from the system. And at the same time, it was a plea in asking for trusting. Mm. Now, my image is Jesus had a twinkle in his eye when he said this. Some laughed with him. Others grumbled. Mm. Um, one of them said, just for today? What about tomorrow? And Jesus said, mm, tomorrow will take care of itself. Well, you just can't ask me to forget about the injustice of our situation. I'm not, said Jesus. But look at the birds of the air. They seem to be doing fine. Besides, if we can stop worrying about tomorrow, maybe we can appreciate the beauty of the present moment. So Jesus was a wandering sage, a teacher of Jewish wisdom. He was a mystic. And those who followed him were given instructions about how to live their lives. Don't carry too much with you. Eat what's put before you. Get out of town if you're not welcome there. <laughs> now, thanks to advances in biblical archaeology and scholarship, we really know quite a bit now about the lifestyle of these Mediterranean sages. They wandered about from town to town offering their teachings. And in exchange for that, they would be given food. Uh, they would be given places to stay. If a sage was really popular and he could tell really good stories, he might be invited to a sumptuous meal. There are records of that in, in the Jesus narrative. And if you got a really good sage, if you ran out of wine, he could make water into wine. <laughs> Jesus and his followers needed to eat. And if they didn't end on conventional social security systems, a family, wealth, status, temple, or marketplace, they were not sure where their next meal was coming from. I do not live this way. I do not know anyone personally who does live this way. We're comfortable. And because of all our comforts, I think we have a difficult time hearing the teaching that is in this very simple, short sentence in the Lord's Prayer. So I wonder if we could grapple with the issues of peace and justice better, if we could just step outside of what it means to live in the American experience and experience what it might be like to live elsewhere under different circumstances. I have known, I, maybe not in current circumstances, people kids who have lived this way, kids that I taught who relied on school for their um, one meal a day. And so one of the really huge downsides of, um, of virtual school, and there's a lot of good reasons for it, was that 
kids didn't have access to free and reduced lunch or breakfast. I have heard statistics about how many kids in HISD have food insecurity. It's about 70%. 70? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. It's pretty high. Wow. Yeah. So another translation of this is grant what we need each day in bread and insight, substance for the call of growing life. And it could just as easily be animate the earth within us. We then feel the wisdom underneath supporting all. This is why it doesn't stop at daily bread. We get wisdom and insight as well. So almost all of the translations that I looked up and interpretations of this line focus on two things. One is to provide enough, but not more than we need. And two, bread is equated with both wisdom and insight. So it's sustenance and it's wisdom. We have a plea here for a blend of physical and spiritual nurturance. Jesus was in some ways a very practical teacher. He wasn't trying to burden people with law and doctrine, but with an idea about a society where basic needs were met, especially for the bottom 85%. Remember that is where Jesus placed himself, was with the bottom 85% of the society. And the story that you tell reminds me of one more recent by Samantha Sachs, who's an educator, a feminist, an author, and a researcher. Part of her work had been in Honduras, working and talking with poor single mothers who called themselves Las Amas de Casa. They wanted things like latrines for their community, so a place to go to the bathroom. They wanted schools, and they wanted technical training programs for the people in their community so that they could be better supported. Sachs goes to research this, and, and she also wants to talk to them about feminism and women's rights, because in Honduras, um, women traditionally are not valued as much as men, and so she really wanted to talk to women about kind of speaking for themselves and gaining rights, and essentially, she's trying to recruit these women into her global yawp for the rise of feminism. After hundreds of questions from her about how they saw themselves, how they saw themselves as women, how they could feel their own efficacy. The leader of this group, whose name was Gloria Reina Santos Montes, asks, why are you a feminist? She goes into this passionate, romantic reason about redistribution of power and her ancestry and the electrical charge of dismantling the patriarchy and is fixed with a hard stare from Gloria Reina Santos Montes who replies, I don't care what you call it. I just want to be able to feed my babies and maybe someday use a toilet. Only she didn't say use. <laughs> she said something much more direct, forceful, and evocative that rhymes with hit. Sachs was stunned into a loud silence. She writes, the world stood still. The earth stopped spinning. The sun shines in one single ray, and except for my pulse throbbing gently on my ears, silence was everywhere. For a wrinkle in time, I'm breathless and speechless, and I want to puke, because no matter how many post-colonial, post-modern pedagogies I examine and expose, you can't theorize mm. breakfast. Hungry children are not concerned with political nuances. They just want to eat. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus was on to this. He knew people's basic needs had to be met. He would lose his audience if he waxed on and on about the glories of 
golden-gated heaven, and if they were starving on earth, he would lose them. It seems that much of his ministry included food, breaking bread, feeding the many. He somehow got that attending to basic needs was not only necessary, but the very basis of spiritual attainment as well. The Poor People's Campaign, initiated originally in 1968 at the end of Martin Luther King's ministry, just before he was assassinated, um, is a multiracial effort, including African Americans, white Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and also indigenous Americans. It's aimed at alleviating poverty, regardless of race. The work carries on today as a movement to address systemic racism, poverty, and a war economy. All of these things are interrelated. It's an effort to provide everyone their daily bread. Full stop. It's really hard for most Americans to conceive of living with just enough. Our entire economy is based on pursuit of abundance, the belief that Americans somehow deserve more, and more equals happiness. Our commercials are all about that abundance and acquiring more. If you buy this car, you'll be happy. If you take this pill, you'll be happy. We don't and we aren't more happy or more deserving. No more than anyone else anyway, but we live under this delusion. The best experience I have of living with just enough, and I want to be really clear that this was a chosen experience, not an imposed one is when I've been backpacking. Um, I did a lot of backpacking in my 20s and I would go with just a pack on my back and everything I needed for up to two weeks at a time. Although it is recreational and completely an opportunity to kind of unplug into the natural world, the whole principle is to pack only what you need and you carry it all on your back. This means one pair of pants, shorts, underwear, and two pairs of socks in case one gets wet and an extra t-shirt in case it gets sweaty. You leave nothing behind. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. So that thing that rhymes with hit, you bring that too. <laughs> I'll let you use your imagination. We've on been that. on trips like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's intense. It teaches you what you're made of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and for someone who lives in abundance, like I do or like you do, I think this experience can be really simplifying empowering and very hard. It's, it's sobering, honestly. I say this not to romanticize poverty or living with very little. I always had a warm shower to come back to. I always had a warm shower. And that warm shower is one of the best feelings I could ever imagine after two weeks in the woods. But there are people who live their everyday lives with only one pair of pants, shoes, and a shirt. I say this to emphasize that we can live more simply to ensure that more people can get their basic needs met. Give us this day our daily bread. So the figure that you give about um, children in Houston, Harris County, in the Houston Independent School District, 70% experience food insecurity. I think it's that That's high. That's stunning. Yeah. The latest figures that I could find nationally or from 2018. And those figures say that over 37 million Americans, including more than 11 million children, suffer from food insecurity in this country. Now, food insecurity is defined as a lack of enough food for an active, healthy life. And though um, 
hunger and food insecurity are closely related. They are not the same. Hunger refers to a personal, physical sensation of discomfort from lack of food. Food insecurity refers to a lack of available financial resources for food at the household level. So um, during this past year, during COVID, when so many workers have been out of work, um, people who are in service industries and things like that, people have had to make hard choices between whether to pay their rent or buy groceries. And fortunately, we've been able to do a little bit of assistance for some of that. As we were getting into this week, um, I, I, I gave up trying to figure out how to talk about this issue. Um, for one reason, an assumption I make about you, the demographic that would tune into this class, is that you know all this stuff. You know about the statistics. You know about the needs. Your generosity shows that. Um, you know about how much income inequality there is in this country. Uh, and many of you, I know, are already involved in wonderful humanitarian efforts. The Ordinary Life Women group has done a tremendous job this past year of raising awareness, particularly in uh, anti-racist issues and income issues, and have done significant work in distributing food and water. So um, I could spit out statistics about the number of people who live in poverty in this country and around the world. You've heard them. At the same time, we live in a country where greed runs the show. And what we're reading is that the gap between those who have and those who don't is getting bigger and the size of the middle class is going down every, every year. Um, so we live in a culture where the cultural greed mentality says about the, those who are suffering food insecurity and hunger, let them eat cake. Because um, we have the abundant resources and food to deal with this, but evidently lack the will or the logistics or something to make it happen. So according to Jewish wisdom, according to the teachings of Jesus, greed and pride are among two of the worst characteristics that a person can have. And the fact is, there is no scarcity of bread in today's world. It's just not evenly distributed. The fact is that bread wealth is increasingly concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. One figure I read is that eight people own as much wealth as the entire poor half of the world's population. So perhaps we could approach this matter from a slightly different angle rather than focusing on wealth accumulation and distribution. Maybe we could just raise the issue of what value do we place on human beings and on human lives. In our system, it's quite easy, very easy, to think that humans are worth how much money they make or have. A person with a lot of money is worth a lot more than someone who's on welfare or an immigrant. And if a person is worth nothing, they deserve nothing. 
It is a fact that the middle class in this country is growing smaller. It's also a fact that poverty breeds disease, crime, discontent, violence, drug use, environmental degradation, and social dysfunction. All of which we're experiencing in our country right now, and all of which everybody pays a price for. doesn't matter how much money that they have. The growing division of this country into the poor and the extremely rich is, from a moral standpoint, immoral. From a self-preservation standpoint, it's simply not sustainable. And let's not overlook the fact that this economic division is also sexist and it's also racist. A fact based on the life of Jesus is this. Jesus lived his life among the outcast, and in his eyes, reflected in his teaching, everybody was equal. Everybody was on the same level. I had a spiritual teacher once who said, that is the primary lesson that will take you home if you can embody it, and he called it the principle of equality. Hmm. Yeah, let's definitely not rest in the assumption that, there, that um, being poor means you're more violent. That, that, you know, Marshall Rosenberg, who gave us nonviolent communication, um, surmised that violence comes from unmet needs. And one unmet need is not having nurturance, not having what you need every day to get by food, money, rent, etc. So there's, lo- there's a whole host of needs that can erupt into violence. And one of them is not having the sustenance that you need. You know, because one of the things that happens is that you know then there then there's this scrambling for need, right? right? And it breeds animosity. I I hope that when I say self-preservation, it should be a motivating factor. uh, That I'm clear about that. Um, I remember living in in Houston um, when I think there was kind of a national movement, although it showed up locally because we run our schools locally to cut teacher's pay. And I thought, you know, this is shooting ourselves in the foot because the children who grow up in the system are gonna become our leaders at some point or lack thereof, and they need to be as well educated as possible. I've never seen the logic in in not paying teachers as much as we pay doctors. Me neither. One of the reasons I quit teaching full time when I had kids is because most of my salary was going to go to daycare. Mm. And it was like, what's the point? Mm. Um, anyhow, you know, I think when it, we're, we're pointing out that we've sold the idea in this country that wealth equals happiness very successfully. For sure, having enough makes my life feel easier. I can pay my bills, I can support my kids, and I have enough extra to be able to buy pretty things. I love art, I love design, I love pillows. Josh says I have a pillow problem, I need to go to Pillows Anonymous. These are all commitments to my ego. Well, okay, so pretty things in baseball, I love both of those things. But anyhow, for sure, not arguing about how we are going to get by each week removes strain from my relationship. And at least 36% of divorces are blamed on financial problems. That was the most recent statistic I could find. You may be able to speak to that more clearly. Mm. 
But having my financial needs met allows me the freedom to pursue other interests like higher education without strain. For sure, wealth does not only lie in the hands of white folks in this country, but the majority of it still does. There's such a huge income gap. There are many poor white folks. In fact, numerically, there are more white folks that benefit from the welfare system than any other racial demographic. We have this idea that was uh, expounded upon in the 80s under Reagan that about the welfare queen being a black woman. Mm. And actually more poor whites benefit from welfare than anything else. A really great book that I'm listening to right now is called Dear White America by Tim Wise. And he really goes through the history of these assumptions of these statistics. And it's really good. It's really well done. Still today, black Americans earn roughly 80% of what their white counterparts do, and Hispanics just a smidgen more. So you can see this graph, the green line is white income earners, and where the bottom earners are between Hispanic and black Americans. This is part of what contributes to understanding terms like white privilege. Our race is just simply not a contributing factor to why we struggle. There are other reasons, but race is not one of them. Earning more money, having basic needs met, however, does not necessarily mean that white Americans by default have more wisdom either. In fact, where greed and exploitation prevail, an ethic of domination also prevails. Materialism creates narcissism. I, I don't know where to stick this in right now, but I really feel like it's important for us to acknowledge this week a rash of violence against the Asian American community, um, which comes from sort of a, a feeling of disempowerment. Who knows where it comes from? But this attention we've paid to sort of um, whiteness equaling Americanness and the danger of calling something like the coronavirus the Asian flu or the China virus leads to white Americans who feel this sense of threat to their identity beating up elderly in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. shooting up a spa run by Asian Americans. I mean, these are things that this kind of violence comes out of perceived unmet needs too, the need to feel important, the need to feel on top, right? And so we see that violence can erupt in many, many, many ways out of unmet needs. So uh, uh, um, I do all the cooking in yeah. our, our house, which I love to do, and I belong to some cooking blogs and so forth. And I got one that said something about this best cooking pan that's ever been made. You need to have it. And, of course, I got it. It's a pan that comes from a place called Our Place. Mm -hmm. I, I bought one. It's the best cooking pan I've ever had. That is true. This week, I got an email from our place, and it was, we will not back down. We will not this, this, this. A very strongly worded political statement about we're here to stay and so forth. And I read down all the way to the bottom and found out our place is owned and sourced by Koreans. Mm. And I'm going to write them back and say, bravo, yeah. I'm standing with you about that. It's just crazy. It is. To blame Chinese for the coronavirus. Right. It's just crazy. It's not looking at ourselves on the whole in the mirror very clearly. There will be a special on HBO tonight on yeah. QAnon. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting. <laughs>
Anyhow, um, James Baldwin, who, as you might have learned by now, is a favorite muse of mine, he was extremely critical of white society's commitment to its own innocence throughout his writing career. He wrote, whatever white people do not know about Negroes reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves. That's the mirror. Our innocence, or our perceived innocence, does not equal wisdom. It does not equal more deserving. Innocence is saying something like, well, I'm not a racist, and I never owned slaves, and my parents participated in the civil rights movement. Wisdom is saying something like, I strive to be an anti-racist, but I have blind spots. I did not own slaves, but I inherited a legacy and a legal system which prizes me because my ancestors were never seen as subhuman. We still have so much work to do, so many wounds to heal. If we remain attached to our innocence, there is a limit to what we can know about ourselves. This is the wisdom part of give us this day our daily bread. Give us the courage to face the truths of our situation and grow in wisdom in the pursuit of justice, mercy, and humility because of it. Bread nurtures our bodies and wisdom nurtures our souls. In this present moment, I think we face a real moral reckoning, not for the first time either. We had it, we had it at the founding of this country, how, we engage, how the European settlers engaged with Native Americans, how we incorporated slavery to, to beef up our economy and then created a racist system out of it, how we did Reconstruction, how we did the Civil Rights Movement. We're here again. We face a moral reckoning. So in this present moment, will we commit ourselves to a truly multiracial democracy or continue to kind of tinker around the edges and say that certain people matter, but do nothing radical to really demonstrate it? This is where Bell Hook's idea of a love ethic comes in. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. She writes that love is care, knowledge, commitment, responsibility, respect, and trust. Love is not guiding systems of domination and separation. It's, it, it's just not what is at the base of those systems. And wealth is not necessary to attain wisdom or love, but for sure having our daily physical needs met helps prepare our minds and bodies to be more clear-headed in the pursuit of wisdom. Part of our daily bread comes from a daily spiritual, spiritual practice, practice and one that grows us in insight and wisdom. Jack Kornfeld, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, wrote the longing for love and the movement of love is underneath all of our activities. All spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. Even the most exalted states and the most exceptional spiritual accomplishments are unimportant if we cannot be happy in the most basic and ordinary ways, if with our hearts we cannot touch one another in the life we have been given. What matters is how we live. Give us this day our daily bread. So I want to be really clear that when we offer statistics about food insecurity, hunger, uh, racial discrimination, violence, all that stuff, we're not moralizing. I'm mm -mm. not, not placing ourselves outside of that. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The fact is, is that what the Hebrew prophets and um, Jesus taught explicitly was that essential 
to being on God's path was embodying a sense of justice and mercy, or as Jesus put it, doing to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And the best of all living religious traditions teach that if we don't live this way, the consequences for everyone are disastrous. So it's not moralizing to say, if you put your hand in the fire, you're going to get burned. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. Um, so give us this day our daily bread. I think we say it so fast, so frequently, that we don't see the depth of it. This teaching is not just about bread. It's also about living in this moment, which is so hard to do. It's central, it's crucial, it's difficulty. And one evidence of that is that most of the time that we've been together today, we haven't been together today. Mm. We haven't been present. Um, I haven't, so I'm assuming that's true for you. Um, I'm thinking about what Holly's saying, and, and if I need to jump in and add something, I'm thinking about how much time we have left. Um, and you're thinking about something you're going to do this afternoon, or you're thinking about your own statistic, or you're thinking about another statistic to refute something that we have said. Um, you think, think about a problem you've got in your life, a, a child who concerns you, a conflict with a part, partner, a problem at work. Being present is hard. Prayer for Jesus is what Nicholas Herman, a 17th century monk who went by the name of Brother Lawrence, referred to as practicing the presence of God. It doesn't have to be verbal. You just have to show up. The difficulty in being present is, I think, one of the reasons that people don't embrace having a daily spiritual practice. If God's rule sacred mystery is here and now, we'll never experience it if we don't learn how to be here and now. If instead of being here and now, we are there and then, we're not in the kingdom. So we have difficulty with this teaching also because of the culture that we live in, because of our difficulty being present, and because of all things this teaching is about bread. About bread. <laughs> um, now, in the time of Jesus, the emphasis was not on the bread, but on daily. And I'm going to get to that before we're done today. There are a ton already in the culture, in the Jewish culture. There was a ton of beliefs and practices about bread, many of which extend to this very time, uh, in, the, in particularly in the Jewish community. To eat with another person? was to be that person's companion. With bread is what that word means, companion. Mm. And that's why bread came to be such an important part of the Seder meal, which became our Eucharist service. Uh, Holly has referred to um, a teaching that we both got in different ways from Thich Nhat Hanh about, and it's a spiritual practice all of its own, of being able to see the whole world in a piece of paper that's such a wonderful teaching, and it's so profound. Um, there's also a very ancient Semitic poem that goes, Back of the loaf is the snowy flower, back of the flower is the mill, back of the mill is the wheat and the shower, and the sun and the Father's will. I made that slide for you, and I prescribed it to Thich Nhat Hanh. 
clearly I didn't read your text very carefully. That's okay. <laughs> it kind of uh, works. Uh, I, I don't think he would have a problem with that. And, yeah. and you know, he sees everything in the, in the paper. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think about, so I'm, I've been listening to this book I was telling you before we started with my son called A Long Way Gone. Uh, this is not in my notes, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's an autobiography, a memoir of a child soldier who has rehabilitated. So in Sierra Leone in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a, a horrendous civil war. And it was the Liberation Army against the, the, the State Army. You know, and, the, and then these two factions joined up and fought someone else. I mean, it was just chaotic. And a lot of it was driven by the, um, what was the guy's name, and who was the leader of Liberia for a long time, Charles. It, it, he, was a, he was a warmonger. And he was funneling a lot of this into other uh, neighboring countries. So eventually these young children... Whose parent, who, who watched their parents and families die in front of them, were recruited by these various warring factions to fight for them. They were handed AK-47s, um, grenades, launchers, and given drugs as sustenance. So marijuana, cocaine, and something that they called brown-brown, some mixture of a lot of things that could numb their bodies enough to not connect to what they were doing. Little boys as young as 11 years old we're shooting entire villages of people and just grew numb to this violence. They came of age in this violence. And this boy's or man's, he's 40 now, story of how he recovered from this. I mean, he's responsible for many deaths. He has blood on his hands, much of which he committed when he was not even present. And, and, and any child who's just been through such grief like that is susceptible to the next adult who comes along and says, I'll take care of you. Here's a gun. Mm -hmm. They did not have their daily bread. They did not have food. Their sustenance was lacking. They were starving for days and weeks upon end. And your mind, you start, your mind starts to deteriorate. Your mind and your body start to deteriorate. And so you, there's this sense that there is just a real anxiety um, and fear about how am I going to stay alive? And at some point listening to this book, you wonder why are they so committed to staying alive that they're willing to do this to their body? It's a really horrific story. And so much of it revolves around not having daily bread, not having sustenance, and then having the wrong kind of teacher come in and say, I'll take care of you. There's a story I'm going to tell that I think sums up this balance of daily bread equating to physical and spiritual fulfillment. This version comes from um, Paulo Coelho's uh, blog. He's the, a brilliant writer and author of The Alchemist. Have you read The Alchemist? Mm -hmm. Most, yeah, so many have. It's such a great book. And it goes like this. There was once a businessman who was sitting by the beach in a small Brazilian village. As he sat, he saw a Brazilian fisherman rowing a small boat towards the shore, having caught quite a few big fish. The businessman was impressed and asked the fisherman, how long does it take you to catch so many fish? The fisherman replied, just a short while. Then why don't you stay longer at sea and catch even more? The businessman was astonished. This is enough to feed my whole family, the fisherman said. The businessman then asked, so what do you do for the rest of the day? The fisherman replied, well, I usually wake up early in the morning, 
go out to sea and catch a few fish, then go back and play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap with my wife, and evening comes, I join my friends in the village for a drink. We play the guitar, sing, and dance into the night. The, businesses, the businessman offered a suggestion to the fisherman. I'm a PhD in business management. I could help you become a more successful person. From now on, you should spend more time at sea and try to catch as many fish as possible. When you have saved enough money, you could buy a bigger boat and catch even more fish. Soon you will be able to afford to buy more boats, set up your own company, your own production plant for canned food and distribution. By then, you will have moved out of this village and to Sao Paulo, the big city, where you can set up HQ to manage your other branches. The fisherman continues thoughtfully, and after that, the businessman laughs heartily. After that, you can live like a king in your own house. The time is right. You, go to the, you can go public, float your shares in the stock exchange, and you will be rich. The fisherman asks, and after that? The businessman says, after that, you can finally retire. You can move to a house by the fishing village, wake up early in the morning, catch a few fish, then return home to play with the kids. Have a nice afternoon nap with your wife, and when evening comes, join your buddies for a drink. Play the guitar, sing and dance into the night. The fisherman, confused, says, isn't that what I am already doing? Give us this day our daily bread. I love that story. Mm -hmm. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I love about living in Houston, mm. that uh, we live in one of the most diverse cities in the world. Now, I have friends in Manhattan who take issue with that. They think <laughs> that, that is, but I'm basing uh, what I'm saying on the work of Stephen Kleinberg yeah. and his uh, Houston research. One of the things I love about Houston is that we have diverse restaurants and diverse food stores. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, I went to Phoenicia. Uh-huh. The Middle Eastern store, and if you go there, uh, you're, we were, um, I think the only white couple in there, everybody else is Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. but I went there particularly to buy this bread. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of bread that's mentioned in the prayer. Yeah. You want some? I do, I love it. I, you know, so... Uh, Josh will laugh in just about three seconds. Bread and butter are my favorite things. I cut a little hole here so yeah. that you can take some. Oh, okay. And uh, have as much as you want. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to Anybody else it without pulling some? it out of your hand. No? Can, no communion bread for y'all? Sophia, you want some bread? <laughs> that's, that's Olivia. Sophia's her sister. Um, This kind of bread, which I'm not going to take the whole thing out here. You can have oh, more. Oh wow! Okay, well, let's just you, is it good? It is. It's nice and fluffy. Mm -hmm. uh, you can fold this up and put it in your pocket, mm -hmm. which is what they did with it. <laughs> I have uh, big pockets today, actually. I mean, if you were out on the road, uh, going from one village to the other in the time of Jesus, there was no Chick Fil A to drop into. Mm -hmm. So this is it, mm -hmm. and this is made every day. The, the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic, is kind of like Hebrew in it's a picture language, uh, meaning that the words form pictures. And so a single word has so many rich possibilities of being interpreted. So the word bread conveys also the ideas of prosperity, truth, 
um, teaching, understanding. This is why Jesus is referred to as the bread which came down from heaven. Not that he is bread, but that it's wisdom that he contains and passes on. Um, so that means that this prayer can also mean, and I'm uh, uh, getting this from Neil Douglas Klotz, give us the insight that we need for daily living. Give us the understanding that we need from day to day. Yes, it is a demand for bread, but it is so much more than that. So this is a prayer that's a prayer for the nurture and nourishment we all need for all forms of growth and for elementary life uh, in general. So I'll tell you a story. You know it. It is buried deep in what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. Um, I think it's a story we all know. There was a time in our history on this journey we call life hmm. when we had a leader whose name was Moses. Moses was a historical figure. Um, he um, was a person of great wisdom and great insight and courage. He's a flawed human being, just like all of us. Moses, remember, got his start um, after having committed murder. But he eventually led us out of Egypt through a series of exciting and awesome events. Time and time again on the, the way out of Egypt and into the wandering in the desert, uh, we were snatched from the jaws of death. That's a great story. Part of it's myth and part of it's legend and part of it is said in hyperbole to make the exodus from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from darkness to light, as graphic and as exciting and as empowering as it can possibly be. Now, I don't know if the word pilgrimage is a verb or not, but I clearly know it's something that we do. We make it from one day to another, from the day of our birth to the day of our death. We're on this journey called life, and our sole responsibility is to grow up and to give meaning to our lives by giving meaning, if possible, to the lives of others. So, you remember there was this time when food was hard to come by. And we wake up one morning to discover that the ground is covered with this stuff called manna. And we're excited and, 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 and we're content and we're grateful. All we have to do is go out, pick up enough for the day's need, our daily bread. Not be greedy. Just take enough that you need for today. Oh, God, it was so good. And we had this experience that God was so good to us. We had been saved. Day after day, the manna appeared. Day after day. Day after day. Hmm. One damn day after another. Bread. Forty years. Day after day. Bread. And we got sick of it. We began to crave the tasty herbs and onions and garlic of our days in Egypt. We may have been in bondage back there. But at least our taste buds got some exercise. 
And the sameness of the daily manna wears on us with nothing to eat but the same old manna. And looking at the nourishment given to us, we said, why in the world have we done this? Why did we get ourselves in this fix? We despise this worthless food. That's an amazing transformation right there. From the daily bread that saved us to our calling it this worthless food. Mm. That which had once been the answer to our prayers and which we had once eaten with such startled and grateful hearts, the sure sign that we were cared for and cared about, that sign present with us each moment of every day, that which once gave us so much meaning had now grown stale and flat and tasteless, and we called it this worthless food. It's going against a fundamental spiritual principle to want life to be other than it is, which is why in coming up with my own definition for spiritual practice years ago, I said that the central content of and for spiritual practice is developing the capacity to be present to what is mm -hmm. and to being present with what is without judgment. It ain't easy but it is the sustenance of life. Central to it is just being present. So if you want the wind of new life blowing across your being, if newness is what you want for yourself, if newness is what you want from this experience between us, then the best thing to do is get involved in the turmoil of wrestling with the same old thing day after day. Because out of this worthless food, same old thing, day after day, week in and week out, that's where new vigor and vitality come from. My art teacher in college, she was one of my great mentors. Um, I have three in my life. <laughs> you're one of them. Oh, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. And she... And in, in encouraging my art process said, I was dealing with this symbol that I really wasn't done with. And um, she, and I was like, this is getting old, this, this house symbol. She goes, no, you need to deal with it. You need to keep dealing and dealing and dealing with it and regurgitate it, regurgitate it, regurgitate it, like diarrhea, she said, until you figure out what it's about. And that is what you're saying, I think, in our spiritual practice. We've got to deal with, with this every day. We've got to deal with ourselves every day. I remember uh, once asking some people if they would come here to St. Paul's and come to Ordinary Life. They didn't at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and frankly, I don't remember if they ever did or not. But they said something very interesting to me. They said, um, well, we may give it a, a shot because I think um, we've heard about all our preacher has to say. Mm. And I thought back, reflecting on that, you know, if that pastor was doing a good job, they probably have heard all he has to say because there's not that much to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can reduce the whole Jesus narrative to less than 50 words. Or, and I'll pay homage to this season in the liturgical Christian calendar, 
If you want to, you can say the whole story wordlessly just by nailing two pieces of wood together. Mm. Well, we're about to come upon this season of redemption, right? And I think Karen said it in our um, podcast this week, the redemption story is about inclusion, is about creating the whole, is about liberation, and really creating a society that represents the multiplicity that we live in and being with it, Mm -hmm. taking it as it is. There we go. Just another way to talk about love every Sunday. (laughs) So give us our daily bread. It's hard to hear because of our culture, the culture of greed, the religion of our culture being consumerism. It's hard to hear this petition because it's about being present, which is very hard to do. It's hard to hear because it's about bread of all things, about daily, everyday, daily bread. As we lived with this character Jesus in the early days, we saw how important it was to him to pray. And we thought maybe if we prayed like him, if we used words we, could, we had heard him use, we could have the same relationship to the sacred mystery that he had. That's my definition of what I think it means to be Christian. Mm. To be Christian is to seek to have the relationship with God that Jesus had. So we ask him, teach us to pray like that. And he said, when you pray... Ask for daily manna. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here via the magic of video recording. (laughs) We won't even be here. We won't even be here. And, of course, we'll take Easter Sunday off. So we'll see you in three weeks.